Farrell, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. Uh, we um, have a question that we brought with us this time uh, about culture and Christianity. And this is, should we allow the current culture of today to affect how we view biblical Christianity? And I think ministering to the culture is incredibly important. For one thing, I don't think it's that hard. I think, first of all, we come out of the culture. We are to come out from among them and be ye separate, but we have been living in the culture and we understand it. And this is why when Christians try to put on a lot of Christianese that's different than the culture, we run into problems instead of making sure that we're biblical in what we're doing. Uh, should we allow the current culture of today to affect how we view biblical Christianity? No. We should go to the Bible first and reflect back on the culture that we live in. But one of the beauties of the Bible is that it's able to, to minister to every culture. Think about all of the different cultures all around the world, all around the world in all the different times that we've been able to minister to. And remember that some of the New Testament dealt with cultures in their day, like eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, like being modest, like men not dressing like women, like women having coverings over their heads. These were cultural things that we look at and go, I don't really understand it. But nobody understands our culture more than we do today. And a lot of people like to make issues out of things that are not biblical. So the Bible, of course, should always be that authority in our lives. But that doesn't mean that we can't reach out and be a part in politics and in culture. And uh, a lot of churches are today allowing culture to cause them to respond in a certain way uh, to, um, to the Bible. Instead of saying, this is what the Bible says, and this is the truth, and this is how it affects our culture. And it might cause people to get upset, but nevertheless, that's the truth that they need to hear. And it's the only real thing that will be able to set them free. We don't want to go against culture's sake just for going against culture. Culture may have some really good things in it. Our culture might be heading in a good direction, but it is the fallen nature of man that affects culture. And there are a lot of things that are accepted today in our culture that we will need to stand against. And because of that, the world will not like us. And the same thing is true when we face politics or certain things within politics. And we try not to get political, but sometimes we are forced into that issue when we have to deal with something that is political. I try when I'm dealing with someone that I know is on an opposite side of the political aisle than I am, I try to be light about it, but I try to make sure that I tell the truth. But of course, the word of God is our authority. The Bible says all scripture is given by the inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. So that means that it's God's word that we need. And in fact, let me pull up a passage here that speaks to us clearly 
about not letting culture, what's going to happen to us if we let culture dictate uh, who we are. And this is happening today, especially within progressive Christianity, which is following your heart. The Bible isn't the authority. Your heart's the authority. Follow your heart for what's good. The problem is, is that our hearts are formed by the culture uh, that is around us. And this is Psalms 1 that says, let's see here. This is Psalms 1 that says, uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So see all of these things. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Well, that's most of all our culture. Our culture doesn't necessarily have to be ungodly, but to a large degree it is. Nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, and whose leaves also shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which is the which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And that's an important thing for us to understand when we are considering the culture of today. We certainly don't want to just pick a fight for picking a fight's sake for culture. But every once in a while, we have to make our stand. And uh, the world's going to expect us to stand a, a certain way anyway. The Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate. I don't want to make an issue where an issue doesn't need to be made. But where there's an issue that needs to be made, I want to be able to stand for that issue. So I want to thank Lisa for that question about culture and um, should it affect our uh, view of biblical Christianity. And instead, we should search the scriptures to find out what they say about the issues of our culture. And I think that we'll find that the Bible is incredibly um incredibly accurate at dealing with the issues that we face today. It's one of the amazing things about the Bible, the way that it is able to really take these aspects and, um, uh, and, and fit them into any culture. Think about all the different cultures in the world today that are using the Bible. And, and some of them see certain things that they might consider to be wrong, but in fact, they aren't wrong. And where Christians like to make some things that are wrong, that aren't wrong at all. Now, first of all, I want to start off by saying we have our sound working today. It was one of the first things that I did. I'm putting um, a checklist on my notes to make sure I go over everything and make sure uh, that we have our sound for today. And at the end of the last study, I said, I didn't want any more questions about the millennium. That's not really what I said, but something along those lines. And I want to say the millennium is on the board. All right, we can talk about it, all that we want to talk about it. Um, I had a little frustrating rant at the end of our last um, study and sorry about that. But well, some things are happen the way that they happen, right? Uh, so um, I want to start with a question, first of all, from Fact Check These Hands, um, which uh, says, oh, what are your thoughts regarding the feet of the man in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Does the iron clay represent um, transhumanism, government, or something else? All right, Fact Check These Hands, thank you very much. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in the dream it has a head of gold, 
It has a chest of silver. It's got a stomach of brass, thighs of iron, and feet of clay and iron. And then Daniel tells him the dream. He says, this is kingdoms and you are the head of gold and you will become overcome by silver, which is the Medo-Persian empire, which will be overcome by the brass, which is the Greek empire, which will be overcome by iron, which is the Roman empire. Now, Daniel's not telling them all of these, but that they represent empires. Then there's animals later on in the book of Daniel that represent the empires as well. And then the feet of iron and clay is the revived Roman empire in the last days. When I first became a Christian, everybody thought it was the EU because the EU had six or seven members and they were waiting for it to get 10 because you've got 10 toes and there are, the beast has 10 horns, three of them are destroyed and one of them replaces it. And so uh, we were looking for some kind of a world government that has 10 parts to it. And um, I do think in hindsight, we're gonna be able to look back and see that. And that when it does take place, we're gonna see what the 10 horns represent and the 10 toes represent. But the feet are the, are the feet of iron and clay. It is the revived Roman empire. The antichrist is the prince, according to Daniel chapter nine. The prince of the people who destroy the city will make a covenant with many for one week, meaning Israel, and they make a peace treaty. That's probably why the Bible says when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them because they make a peace treaty. And for the first time, there will be peace in the Middle East. And I think we're heading towards that. Saudi Arabia is talking about um, having a peace agreement with them. We have peace agreement with Egypt, um, with, uh, with Jordan. Of course, there's Lebanon that is still at odds against Israel. Um, Gaza Strip, which was given to the Palestinians and now is run high by Hamas. Um, and uh, Syria has a port with, um, with Russia and Iran that have a strong presence there. And so these things are all very biblical because the Bible tells us that there's gonna be this coalition in the last days that's going to come against Israel. Uh, but these are the world powers and they happen just as Daniel spoke of them happening. And we know that it was written long before the Greek empire and Alexander the Great is spoken of in the book of Daniel. And so is the Roman empire. And then the revived Roman empire, it's, it's revived, but it's not iron, it's clay. And then you remember in his dream, a rock came out and the rock is Christ, tapped the toes and the whole statue came crumbling down. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He goes out and builds a statue all of gold. You tell me I'm going to be overtaken by other empires. I'm telling you, I'm going to make a kingdom of all gold. And it shows the heart of arrogance. And um, Nebuchadnezzar became like an animal for seven years. And finally, um, he did humble himself and did turn to God, which is interesting. Uh, but um, whether or not, I, I, I think he stayed in that relationship with God. So that, that is the, um, the final feet and 10 toes. And uh, what exactly those 10 toes represent or the 10 horns of the beast represent, we're not quite sure. Um, a lot of people give ideas, but as time goes on, those ideas kind of fade away. Once again, we don't wanna get obsessed with timing. We just wanna know, we wanna be ready. We wanna be ready today. We're living in the day when the Roman Empire could be revived in whatever way that it is revived. All right.
So thank you very much. Fact check these hands. I appreciate it. Uh, Psychman45, um, the five silly gals of Matthew 25. These are the five women who do not have oil. Literally, they were ready, but not eventually, but eventually ran out of oil. If oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit, how does one run out of the um of the Holy Spirit? Thanks to Robert. Dude questioned him. Dude of questioned him. Uh, Duke of questioned him. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, psych man, I appreciate uh, that question. Uh, so um, let me just see if I can go get it and we can read it here. So it's Matthew 25 and we have the five virgins. So I'm just going to go ahead and pull this up on the screen. We're going to read it together and see if we can't work through it. Psych man, I appreciate that. So the kingdom of heaven is like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet their bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But those wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all stumbled and slept. And at midnight, the cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming out to meet him. Then all of those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, say no, lest there should be not enough for us and you, but go to, to, to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And there's our key. Those who were ready went in and went to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterwards, the virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But they answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, you know neither the day nor the hour which this Son of Man is coming. So the point of the point of this parable is to be ready. That's the point. So we see the ones that didn't bring hold oil with them as those not having the Holy Spirit, because no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the is the one who anoints and is in the Bible compared to oil. And so we make that connection. Um, when it came time, their lamps went out. Now, did they already have some of the Holy Spirit? Perhaps they had the Holy Spirit with them, but not in them. It was drawing them, but they hadn't really surrendered their lives to Christ. The obvious point is that they were not ready. And so they were left behind. And we're going to take that the fact that they were not ready to mean that they were not saved. Let's read it again here. But um, afterwards, the virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And some said, don't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And he says, away from me, for I never knew you. In John 17, 3, in what is the Lord's prayer, he's praying for the church and his disciples. He says, and this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and the son whom he sent. So these five virgins did not have the Holy Spirit with saving power. Could the Holy Spirit have been with them? Their lamps weren't lit. They weren't the light of the world. The other five were the light of the world. They were ready when the Lord returned. And so we want to make sure that we are ready because we don't know when he's coming back. 
we could fall into the sensational camps of those who say he's coming back soon. He's coming back within the next year. I can't imagine not coming back. We know the day or the hour, so he's coming back on. The, we don't know the day or the hour, but we know the two days, so he's coming back on the Feast of Tabernacles. All of that is problematic. Instead, we don't know what hour in which the Son of Man is coming. There's other passages that tell us that we don't know. Not only do we not know the hour, but that he is coming at a time that we don't expect him. And that's a really important point because if we're ready, he's coming at a time we don't expect him. The reason he doesn't come like a thief in the night to us, the Bible tells us, is because you and I are ready for him. If I knew a thief was gonna break into my house, I knew they had a mark for one night and I stayed up all night when they came through the door, whatever time they came through, I'm ready. It's not because I knew what time it was okay, they were coming. It's because I knew they were coming. That's the point for us Christians. We are supposed to know that Jesus is coming. And so we have oil in our lamp and we are ready. It's a wicked servant that says, my Lord delays his coming. And so I'm gonna go out and do this and that. And when the Lord returns, he is not ready for the Lord's return. Being ready is ultimately being saved committing yourself to Christ. And if you are joining us on this Q&A for the very first time and you've never given your life to Christ, the Bible says as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God. This means you invite him in. You say, Lord, I want you in my life. I want to live for you. That's what repentance is. You change your mind. No longer do you want to live for yourself and the things you're living for, but you now want to live for God. And you ask him and invite him in. And Jesus said, I'll open the door and I'll come in and I'll dine with you. Bible says those who call out on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it wasn't really that they didn't have enough oil because it says earlier here in this um, that they had no oil. It says uh, there were five foolish, let me bring it back up again here. Um, it says those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. All right. So thank you, Psych Man. I appreciate that. Um, it's good to see you guys uh, here today. I'm glad that we're up and running and we have sound. Uh, we changed some equipment out here. Seems like we're always adding a little bit of equipment to try to make it better. We've worked on our sound quite a bit because there were some echoes in it. I think it sounds pretty good now. Let me know what you think about it. And also let me know where you're watching from. Uh, I'd love to just pop on and tell me where you're watching from. I'd love to see uh, where you are at. Uh, we have a question from, is it Teva? Tevia? Teva? Sorry if I butcher your name. Um, but she says, is saying, oh my God, really using the Lord's name in vain? Um, so Teva, yeah, I think to say God, or, oh my God, or, um, oh Lord, I can't believe that happened, is to use the Lord's name in vain. I think that we should have more respect than that. Um, I like what, um, oh, what's his name with Living Water Minister Ray Comfort? I like what Ray Comfort says. Would you use your mom's name that way? If your mom's name was 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 Tammy, would you just be like oh oh my Tammy? You you wouldn't do that because you have a respect for your mom. 
So it's a way of having respect for God. The problem is, is that we get into habits and habits are hard to break and we need the conviction of the spirit to do it. But once you've repented and you go, okay, I need to stop doing this. And then you do it and you reminded that you do it. That's when you just say, Lord, I'm sorry, help me not to do this. And so you look for opportunities or you just correct yourself when you do it. You say, oh my God. And you go, oh, just, you know, what a drag or try to find another one. Um, sometimes people say, oh my gosh, right? And that's a replacement, oh my God. And I don't have a huge problem with that. But I think if you're gonna be convicted in saying, oh my God, or God, just randomly, then probably don't wanna use replacements either. Um, I try not to. I'm not going to say that I don't ever do that. Uh, I was uh, I was playing golf a couple of years ago um, with a couple of guys. One of them was a Christian. The two other weren't Christians. And I missed a putt. I don't know, close putt, four foot or something. And I missed it. And I said, golly. And then my buddy goes, this is not Christian. Golly, <laughs> golly. You said golly. It just They just hadn't heard that. Um, in reality, that is a substitution of some kind, right? So I don't want to get too caught up in that. And um, I don't want to get too legalistic because when we get too legalistic, we think we're interacting with God based on that legalism. However, when it comes to using the word God or the Lord's name or Jesus Christ or, you know, something else along those lines, then we want to stay away from it. Um, I think at Teva, um, I used to say Jiminy Crickets. And, and then I got thinking, I wonder what Jiminy Crickets is in a replacement for Jesus Christ. And I certainly wasn't doing it out of heart in any way, shape or form. I would have never said, you know, Jesus Christ, but I'll say Jiminy Crickets. And so I've tried to stop doing that. Not because I think necessarily that's sin when I do it, I just want to be above board on everything. And I don't want to be legalistic. So if somebody else says Jiminy Crickets, I'm not going to go, um, hey, that's a replacement for Jesus Christ. I stopped saying that. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to let it go. And for, for the non-Christians that I do spend time around, and when they do curse or they do take the Lord's name in vain, sometimes because they know I'm a pastor, they'll say to me, oh, I'm sorry. And my standard line is, I'm not the one you got to worry about. You know, or, or, or I'll tell them, I didn't get any, any on me because I don't have a goal of trying to make a non-Christian act Christian. I want them to be real around me and be who they are, that I might be able to be real around them and see them one to Christ. All right. So yes, uh, Tevia, as a Christian, um, you should stop using phrases like that. Gosh, golly. Oh my gosh, um, th those you can kind of seek on your own to see if you're convicted by the Holy Spirit. I think those are, are a matter of conscience, all right? <clears throat> Excuse me, you're gonna find people who can agree with me on what I just said as far as whether or not you can use those words. Because there are people who are a lot more, um, a lot more uh, legalistic uh, than I am. Empress Kimberly, I'm glad you didn't have to put a bunch of red X's across today that I don't have any sound. Um, I, I do like this passage, by the way, you're bringing up. I'm not sure what you're asking about it yet, but I like this passage. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4 says, um, I have always believed is pre-trib. I have always believed in pre-trib. But these verses say, 
we will see the Antichrist revealed in the temple, and that would mean mid-trib at best. Could you explain? I would love to explain. Uh, like I said, I really like this passage because there's a couple of things this passage is telling us as Christians that is really important. And I think that these passages here are really important. So um, let's go ahead and bring this up on the screen here. And we're going to start in verse one. I know we're going to three or four, but it helps, okay, just to be in context. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So we take it, that's the rapture are gathering together to him. There is a gathering together to him that takes place after Jesus returns. He sends his angels out to the four corners to gather what is the Jewish people or the majority of the Jewish people, or it could be some Gentiles, from the four corners of the earth, okay? But concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled in sp either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So somehow that Jesus had returned and they had not been gathered together with him. There were people that were telling them that they had missed it for whatever reason. See, he says, let no one deceive you by any means. That day will not come first unless the falling away comes first. The falling away could be two different things. Falling away here is the Greek word apostasia and it could mean the gathering of the church in the clouds. He's saying we could see the falling away first, the apostasia, the taking away of the church first. Uh, it could be the great falling away that we probably are seeing today when we see so many people deconstructing, when we see people entering into progressive Christianity and leaving the authority of scripture behind, which should be a huge warning to us. So the sign that we are not in the tribulation period is that we're going to see the great falling away first. Then it says, and the man of sin is revealed. Kimberly, the only thing in this passage that has to happen first before the, the, the rapture is the falling away. That's either the great apostasy, which we know will take place. We're not being unbiblical. This could be another reference to the great apostasy, which we know will take place or the rapture of the church because of the word that's used here, apostasia. Um, and so, but the man of sin will be revealed. In other words, he's saying to them, if the day of Christ had come, the Holy the, the man of sin would be revealed. You would be in the tribulation period. And when the first seal is torn in Revelation chapter six, the, the, the conquering horse that comes riding out is the antichrist. He is the first one on the scene from the beginning to the end of the tribulation. So you would know who the Antichrist is. So when people tell me today, and I do get a lot of this, uh, especially in um, in uh, comments on, on YouTube, um, we're in the tribulation period because of this and because of that. Well, then I always say, well, who's the Holy Spirit? Because the man of sin should be revealed. Now, people are gonna try to talk about the way this is worded in the Greek, and I wanna tell you, go go ahead. Go and look at the way it's worded in the Greek. Go and look at the Greek and Hebrew lexicon. Go and look at Bdag and Holt. Uh, Holt is the Old Testament, Bdag is the New Testament. Um, this is very clear. Let no one deceive you by any means that the day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And then the man of sin being revealed and the man of sin being revealed. It doesn't say unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin comes first. It says is revealed the son of perdition. 
who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and who is worshiped. So we know we're not in the tribulation period because the man of sin has not been revealed and the church hasn't been taken up to be with the Lord yet. We are seeing the great falling away. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, people get dogmatic about what that this great falling away is, but um, I, um, I don't have anything strong about what about what that is. I want to just go to Strong's. Last time I couldn't get Strong's up here. I was trying to look for a good BDAG um, commentary on my uh, on my phone, and I haven't been able to find it yet. Um, I've been able to get uh, my logos up and going on my computer. I may put it on my app, I, I mean, on my um, iPad, and then be able to bring it up for you guys online. So I'm just going to go to 2 Thessalonians. What was it? Two. And um, let no one deceive you. I'm going to go back here and pull this, put this up on screen for you. We'll just take a look at this in the Strong's Concordance. Strong's is pretty basic, but you can get a basic idea. Um, verse three, let no one, um, let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come, except there be a falling away first. There be a falling away. I'm going to check on that. That's apostasia. Um, and it says, Feminine of the same, definition from truth, um, or defection from truth, properly the state, apostasy, falling away, forsaking. So, um, some there there is a way in which this word is used to mean a uh, being removed from something that is not just a defection from the truth, falling away, forsaking, maybe the world. Um, and it really isn't shown here in this. So that was not, not incredibly helpful. All right. So I hope that that is helpful, Kimberly. Uh, if um, you have a follow-up question on that, I'd be really glad to hear of the follow-up question. All right. So thank you very much, Jari. Good to see you. Jari says, question, does Matthew 7, 21 through 23 contradict Luke 9, 50? A man who wasn't a believer cast out demons, and Jesus said he is on our side. Should we not also judge false teachers before the time that their time? Thanks. Uh, let's. Um, I think I've got the passages that you're talking about here. Um, so, well, let me just go ahead. First of all, let me just go ahead and look up um, the. Luke 9:50 one that could be pretty easy here. Luke 9:50 uh, we'll take we'll take a look at that and see exactly what passage you're talking about. I know what you're saying that there's a guy cast on demons the disciples say um, the disciples come and say uh, Lord we saw a man cast on demons and we stopped him and Jesus said why'd you stop him if he's not for us he's against us okay So Luke 9:50 let's see what that is if that's that passage. Luke 9, 50 is a lot of verses down here. All right. Yeah, Jesus said, do not forbid him for, let me bring it up here. Jesus said, do not forbid him for he who is not against us is on our side. I'm I'm going to say, and then let me just go ahead and I'm just come back and read a little bit more in context. Now, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone cast out demons in your name and we forbid him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is 
us is on our side. So Jari, I think that we got to be careful that we don't read too much into a passage. So just because he's not with them doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in Jesus. We saw someone cast out demons in your name and we forbade him because he doesn't follow, uh, d- does not follow with us. So what it says is he's not with him. And Jesus said, do not forbid him. So that he had seen Jesus, that he had seen Jesus cast out a demon, that he believed in him and had faith. It doesn't say that he was contrary to him or a non-believer. So coming back to your question here, Matthew, let's let's go and just take, let's just take a moment and look at Matthew 7 as well. Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Let me see if I can get there a little quicker. 21 through 23. Yeah, I never knew you. Um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he does the will of my Father. So I don't know that I would necessarily connect these two, Jari. Um, many will come in my name saying, Lord, Lord, they'll prophesy in my name, cast out demons in your name. So here's where you make the connection that's good. Um, and many wonders in your name that I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice iniquity. So I've always wondered about this verse, Jari. When they say we cast out demons in your name, I, you run into a lot of people that have really weird beliefs. They're obviously not Christian. And they've said they've cast out demons and they've healed people when in reality they didn't, or maybe it was done with some demonic spirit. But I, I think they didn't is what I really think happens. And so I think we've got to be careful. They didn't know him. So maybe they thought they did, but they had not really cast out demons, right? There are a lot of people who think they had cast out demons when in reality they haven't because they, you know, go through with someone who finally starts talking in the third person as if they have a demon cast out of them. Maybe they're being tricked by someone. Maybe they think they did that. Maybe they think they did a miracle in the name of Jesus, but in reality, they didn't do that miracle at all. Um, So your question, should we judge people before their time now? Um, Or should we not also judge false teachers before their time? Thanks. No, false teachers are are a totally different thing. When uh, you see someone teaching something that you know is false, it's just a false doctrine, like the prosperity movement teaching that you're little gods and you speak things into existence. Let's judge that before before it's time. Can I judge each one of their salvations? whether or not they're genuinely saved. I have no desire to do that. I don't know whether they're saved or not, but I do know that's false doctrine. And I know they're false teachers because they're teaching not only that false teaching, but several other false teachings. So no, I don't think we should, um, it's not a matter of forbidding them to cast out demons at this point. It's a matter of saying, you're, what you're saying doesn't jive with the scriptures and that we should call out false teachers and call them out by name. Paul talked about the false teachers in Galatians, and um, he said, I am marveled so soon that you believe another gospel. That is not another gospel. But if, any, if, if anybody comes to you teaching something different than what you've already heard, then let them be accursed. And so, um, yeah, I don't think it has anything to do, Jari, with judging false teachers. I just think it has to do with not coming against someone who says that they're a Christian because they might not be a part of what we're doing. That's probably the real lesson to learn there. There are people that might not be as close to Christ, 
but what they're doing is serving him and loving him and we should not reject them <clears throat> because they are not part of us. I think that's the real issue there. All right, Diana, we have a question. And Diana says, will you please elaborate on the, the significance of Epaphrates, uh, the Euphrates River, <laughs> drying up as mentioned in Revelation 16? Yeah, I wish we had the exact, I wish we had the exact statement there. Um, let me just look for something here really quick. What if I brought my phone in? I did. Let me see if I can just take a moment to look this up here. Um, the Euphrates River is drying up. The Euphrates River drying up. Let me see if I can find a quick article on it here. Uh, yeah, the first thing that came up is October 27, 21. Is the drying up of the Euphrates River a fulfillment of Bible prophecy? And I've seen some pictures of the Euphrates River that's out in the that people are standing out in the middle, and there's a very small section there, and it dries up. So a 200 million man army in Revelation 16. Let me just see if I can find that um, spot really quick here. 16, because I would like to read it. I think it really helps us to be able to read these things. Um, Lotham sores, seas turned to blood, water turns to blood, a lot of stuff happening here. Uh, scorched earth, darkness and pain. Euphrates right up, here we go. All right, so it is Revelation 16, 12. I'll bring this up on the screen for you here. It says, then the sixth angel poured out a bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming up out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they were spirits of demons performing, performing signs which go out of the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle in the great day of the Almighty. And behold, I'm coming like a thief in the night. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments clean. And the shame, did I get to my reading the right spot? Where am I reading here? Let me just make sure I'll come back. Yeah, the Euphrates River dries up. Let's get back here again. All right, so Jesus says, um, all right, and then, and they gathered them together in a place called Armageddon. So we're talking about the very, very end here. Right, then the sixth angel poured out a bowl on the great river Euphrates and the waters were dried up. So uh, yeah, this is one of the reasons people will say today that um, we are in the tribulation period because things like this are happening. Um, it would not take that much for the great Euphrates River to be dried up today and uh, could very well be a sign. Again, a sign that we're living in the last days. Another sign of God saying, get ready. Doesn't mean it can happen right around the corner. Doesn't mean that we might not come out of whatever drought we're in and the Euphrates River might become huge again. Uh, but when we read something about the Euphrates River drying up and we know the Bible says that a great army is going to come across there, then that is something that should pique our interest and help us to make sure, Diana, that we are ready and and right for Christ. Uh, really interesting. I remember that when COVID hit, there were also swarms in, in various places and a couple other things that all tied together with God sending some kind of a message uh, to, to mankind um, 
And so, well, let's see if you have another question. If you guys have a question, you can write the word question out, read it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit uh, your question. It is good to see you. If you're visiting here for the very first time, really glad to have you here. Uh, you can ask questions about anything. We do connect these to our prior teachings. And if you've watched a video or watched one of our teachings have a question about that, then you can go ahead and ask that question. Um, also, here in the future, one of the things that I want to do with these Q&As, I think especially on Wednesdays, is I want to connect them to a book. I'd like for all of us to be reading a book that's going to help us. I'm thinking of Evidence That Demands a Verdict, the revised edition uh, done by Sean McDowell and Josh McDowell. And um, we would take the first few minutes of, well, we would take the first few minutes of the, uh, of the Q&A and talk about the chapter. And then we could all be reading it and talking also about what's coming out of that book. Okay. So, um, Kimberly, we, I don't know if we have another problem. Add to broadcast. All right, so I don't think that we do. I think everything's okay here. Somebody give me a thumbs up. Let me know that things are all right. Uh, hopefully, I'm still looking at a sound meter going off. I'm looking around, see if there's any other problems. I hope there's not. All right, so um, <clears throat> uh, what else? Uh, if um, you have questions about, if you have questions about apologetics, about prophecy, any, any of those kind of things. Um, then you can ask those. I'm just taking my time to go through here. I'm trying to talk while I'm taking my time to go through the comments here to see if I make sure I'm getting all of the questions uh, that are being asked. So we do have a follow-up from Kimberly. Um, so Kimberly says follow-up pastor um but it says that day will not come gathered together until the falling away and the man of sin is revealed right so what it doesn't say kimberly is that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is not is revealed first so it isn't saying the man of sin has to be revealed first it's simply saying the man of sin has to be revealed so it's not a connection to those two. And um, let me just go, I just wanna go back to it again. And let's go ahead and see if I can bring up the Amplified Bible. And that may, may help us to be able to get a little bit understanding of this, okay? So oftentimes we think of things, um, I mean, just, just looking at what it says. Um, the gathering until, um, but I say that day will not come um, gathered together until the falling away and the man of sin is revealed. Uh, so let's, let's, let's read it again. Let's read it first of all in the new King James, and we'll just take, take our time and look at this again. All right. The only thing that has to happen first, Kimberly here is the falling away. So let me go ahead and put this up on it again. It says, um, now, in regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to meet him, we ask your brothers and sisters not to be unsettled and alarmed either by 
so-called prophetic revelation or a spirit of messenger or letter alleging to me or from us to the effect that the day has already come. So this is the Amplified Bible. Um, Let no one in any way deceive you or entrap you that the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That is the great rebellion, um, abandonment of the faith by professed Christians. And the lawless one is revealed. So the lawless one is revealed, he's not coming first. So if the, if they were in the tribulation period, which they thought they were in, the Antichrist would have to have been revealed. So the rebellion would come first, and then the lawless one would be revealed. And that's the way it says it. And if we go back out of the Amplified Bible, and we read it in the, let's just read it in the NIV, and see the way that the NIV words this as well. Maybe we can get a little more help. Concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by teaching alleging from us. So somebody came and gave a teaching alleging that the gathering together had happened, that they were in the tribulation period, whether by prophecy or by word or by mouth or by letter associated, that the day of the Lord had already come. So they're saying the day of the Lord was there. They were in the tribulation period, that somehow they missed it. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So the rebellion has to occur and then the man of sin has to be revealed. It doesn't say the rebellion be revealed. It says that the rebellion occurs, or as it says in the New King James, happen first, and then the man of sin is revealed. It doesn't say until the rebellion is revealed and the man of sin is revealed. That would say something completely different. That would say that in the tribulation period, you would have to have that rebellion happening and be revealed in the tribulation. But the man of sin is being revealed in the tribulation and the rebellion is happening beforehand. All right, Kimberly? Um, again, we can take more of a follow-up question if you want to try to take a look at that a little bit more. But the only thing that has to happen first in 2 Thessalonians is that the, the rebellion has to happen first. And then the man of sin is revealed. And um, that that is the way it reads. All right. So thank you, Kimberly. I appreciate that. Um, I, appreciate, I appreciate the follow-up. And hopefully that that does clarify some things. All right. So um, we have a question from Rod about Deuteronomy um, 18.10. So Rod says, in Deuteronomy 18.10, or an observer of times, so then does it make it sin to set dates? Well, let's look at Deuteronomy 18.10 and see exactly, Rod, what, um, what you're looking at. Because right now I'm not I'm trying to I'm trying to put together the passage, not able to. Deuteronomy 18:10. All right, we're going to start in verse nine, which is talking about occultic practices. You're asking is a sin to set dates. All right, so here we are. Um, make sure I've got the right one. I've got NIV up. Let me just go ahead and go to New King James, just because I'm so much more familiar with it. Um. And we were looking at verse nine, right? Just want to make sure. Yeah. No, 1810. Okay, 1810. Let's start with nine though. Um, when you come into the land, which the Lord your God has given you, 
you shall not learn to follow the abominations of the nations. There shall not be found any among you, anyone who makes his sons or daughters pass through fire, or who practices witchcraft or soothsaying, or one who interprets omens or sorcerers, or one who conjures spells, or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls on the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination uh, to the Lord. Okay, so then we'll go back to your question here. Um, I don't think that that applies to those who, who set dates. But I think there's a major problem with those who do it. In fact, let me show you, let me show you a passage out of Luke 21. Uh, we covered this here not that long ago, but it is really an interesting passage because there are a lot of people who will say, it's right around the corner. You know, the, their signs and the, the, we've got the triads of the blood moons and there's harbingers that are showing us that Jesus is coming back soon. You better get, get your life ready uh, because he could come back at any moment. And um, here in Luke chapter 21, it says, so they asked him saying, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now here they're asking him about the temple. Jesus had just got done telling them about the temple stones on one being on another. When you get into Matthew 24, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee into the wilderness. Pray that it's not on the Sabbath or you're pregnant. In, in Luke 21, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when he says to not return to the city because it says when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, it's not the abomination of desolation that's brought up. So here it goes on to say, um, and what will be the signs when these things are about to take place? And he said, take heed that no one deceive you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. That's a warning to me as a pastor, a teacher, that I don't tell people, I know that I know when Jesus is coming back. The time is near. Jesus may, the um, cults have learned, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Jehovah Witnesses, the, the Millerites, um, the Seventh-day Adventists had their roots in this, uh, that if they get people fired up about Jesus coming back at any minute, then they can get a, a real commitment, especially a lot of money out of people. But but Jesus doesn't want to sensationalizing his return that way. And so he says, because some are going to come saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near. So we want to be careful. This is the warning that God's given us is that we would not be those who would be saying, Jesus is coming back within a couple of weeks. I can't imagine he's going to come back September, maybe September of this year during the Feast of Tabernacles. And we don't not supposed to know the day or the hour, but we know today these are dangerous things. And we're not supposed to do it because it's sensationalizing things. It could be that God, I mean, right now, we're supposed to know the signs of the times, and that's what we're told. Know the signs of the times. There are things happening, like Euphrates River drying up. This is, should give us pause. But does that mean Jesus is coming back tomorrow? As I said, there could be a flood and the Euphrates River could fill up and we might not be there. God could wait another 50 years if he wanted to and not come back right away. And a lot of people have misread a lot of promises in the Bible that tell them what day Jesus is coming back when he hasn't come back. 
So is it sin to set dates? Yeah, I think it is. Is it sin to say, listen, Jesus said lawlessness was going to abound, love of many were going to grow cold, men were going to be lovers of themselves, children were going to be disobedient to parents, the Euphrates River was going to dry up, there was going to be birth pains, so it looks like we're living in the last days, so be ready. Be ready because the time's short. That's not sin, to tell people to be ready. But when I start telling you Jesus could come back at any moment, he might come back next week, you guys better be ready. And by the way, that this is our, or you can donate to our church here so we can get this word out more or buy more of my books so we can get the word out. That, Jesus said, do not follow such a person. That was his direction. Don't follow such a person. All right, Rod. So thank you very much for that. I really appreciate that. Um, I don't think that that's witchcraft by any means. Um, I think it's people trying to look into scripture and then quite frankly, just misusing it. A lot of these guys, I won't give you some of the names of the guys that I see setting dates now because they set them in weird ways. I, it's gonna ha I know it's two days it's gonna happen instead of the one, but I respect the way they handle scripture, except they've gotta stop this. They've gotta listen to what Jesus said and the time is near, stay away from that person and stop trying to set dates. Uh, the whole truth, good to see you. I appreciate you, by the way, and it cracked me up when I was on my little rant about the um, millennium last week, and you put in there, how about the millennium, dot, dot, dot. That was funny. Hey again, Pastor. Hello, um, the whole truth. What do you think about using Daniel 12, 11, juxtaposed with Matthew 24, 36, to argue for the rapture? All right, well, let's just take a look at those two. So we'll, we'll start with Daniel 1211. And sometimes if you can cut and paste these, we can get a few more questions in if you have time or you have the ability to be able to cut and paste. I use a version Bible to cut and paste into comments, scriptures, and it can be very, very helpful. But Daniel 1211, let me get to Daniel first. Daniel 1211, let's read this one first. I'm going to get this up on the screen for you. I'll see if I can make the connection before we get over to um, Matthew 24, 36. So this says, um, and from that time that the daily sacrifices is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So this has been one of the passages people have used. Um, William Miller did this, turning this into years. Then he picked a date. Then he had October 44 of, um, no, October, he had a time in October in 1844 that Jesus was the latest time that Jesus could come back. So he used this date. There's an extra 45 days here and um, over three and a half years. So we want to think about that and we want to compare it to Matthew, let's see what it is again here, Matthew uh, 2436. So let me get there. And then we'll look at your question, Matthew 24, 36. All right, here we go. No one knows the day or the hour. All right, I'm putting up on the screen here. Um, so here he says, but no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven, but my father in heaven. By the way, this is a statement. This isn't God saying no one knows the day or the hour, but someone's going to know uh, the week or the month or the, the year. 
We could say, we could know in the world, one day in the world, Jesus will return. So the question that you're asking then is taking these two passages, connecting them to argue for the rapture. Um, I don't think there could be an argument for the rapture because I don't think that Daniel's talking about the rapture when he's talking about that. I think it's talking about the three and a half years from the time of the abomination of desolation, right? And um, I, wish I, w- I wish I had a way to go on back and forth. I actually do have a way to go on back and forth if I look these up on different sources and maybe I need to do that so we could go back and forth and take a look at them. Um, 12, I think it was 11 if I remember right. Yeah. Sorry to do this in front of you guys. Hopefully it's not making you sick as you're watching that. From the time of the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be three and a half years. And that's to the return of Christ. No one knows the day or the hour. So I think I understand the question that you're asking a little bit better now. Um, that's why I believe the, the no man knows the day or the hour is coming back for his church. We do know he comes back secretly for his church in the rapture of the church. And I, when people tell me, I don't believe in the rapture, it always cracks me up because the Bible teaches clearly a rapture, but we're talking about his return. We're going to know when his return is, we'll be up in heaven, but they're going to know when his return is because the seven years is going to go by and three and a half years is mentioned again and again. So the no man knows the day or the hour is definitely on him coming for his church. All right. So hopefully that's helpful. The whole truth, truth, um, we're running out of time today, but maybe if you have a follow-up on that question, you can ask that next week. And um, so I'm not sure when I'm going to do the marriage supper um, teaching. I'm thinking about doing um, Revelation after we're done with Galatians. So if that's the case, we would get into the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, pretty quickly there. All right. So um, we have a question from Nori. Nori, good to see you. Nori says, um, what, with all the anger in the world, do Christians have a right to be angry? We get angry with people we don't even know. What about righteous anger? Ephesians 4.26 and Proverbs 16.10. All right, Nori, um, first of all, um, there, there is a point to become angry righteously and even to take action. Let's just use an example. Let's just say we're walking down the road. Well, I just saw this yesterday. So um, there's a guy walking down the road in New York and he attacked a kid and a woman. And there was a guy there that was an MMA fighter and he took the guy down, pinned him and held him until the police came. When you see someone attack a child, you there, there's righteous anger in stopping that from happening. Jesus had righteous anger when he flipped over the tables because they were abusing people um, by, financially. They're looking to take people's money. Um, so let's, but let's just take a quick look at Ephesians, Nori. I do think there's a, a time to have that righteous anger, and um, it righteous anger should fire fire you up when when there is a righteous anger that can take place, um, and we may stop something from happening but we're not going to hurt somebody in that righteous anger. Okay. Um, so 426 says, um, therefore putting away lying, let each one of you, oh, let me put it up on the screen here for you. 
I therefore put away lie and let each one of you speak the truth to his love and neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, but do not let the sun go down on your anger. Yeah. So again, we can be angry and not sin. That's kind of what I said. We don't want to end up hurting people. Um, but there is a time, there is a time to be angry about the things that are taking place and going on in the world. Nori, we have another one here in Proverbs. Let me just go ahead and take a look at this one really quick. Proverbs 426. See what that one says. I'm not sure what this is. I kind of knew what the last one would be, but 426. Um, let's see, ponder your path. Let me put it up here. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. All right. So kind of just a matter of being under self-control, right? I think is what um, is what you're saying there. So yeah, Nori, I do think that there is a time uh, to be angry. And I think we, the Bible says put away wrath and anger and malice. So I think that that, that righteous anger is a rare thing, but does need to happen from time to time. All right. So let me just take a quick look here. Um, I missed Rod's question. Did I miss Rod's question? Let me just go back and take a look, Rod. I'm sorry. Sometimes that happens. Deuteronomy 18.10, didn't we cover that? Um, or an observer of the times. So then does it make it sin to set dates? I don't think I, I, I don't think I missed that one. If I missed another one earlier, I'm sorry. Um, we're coming to the time to, uh, to wrap it up. Um, so let me just I'll take one more question here from, um, is it Long Story? From, uh, and Long Story says, let me get your question readable here. All right. I listened to a teaching that called the restrainer of the Holy Spirit. I always thought the restrainer was us, the church, saved believers. Is it all one of those or none? All right. So yeah, the restrainer is the Holy Spirit in the church. The Holy Spirit will still be here. People will still be getting saved. Hopefully when we are taken to be with the Lord, the people left behind will come to Christ and the Holy Spirit will be still be there. But we are the salt of the earth. So the Holy Spirit in us is the restrainer. And um, we, we help to restrain things that are happening. Imagine what this world would be like. And I guess we'll find out during the tribulation period when the church is no longer here because the church with the Holy Spirit is a restrainer. And so us taken out of the way and the Holy Spirit without operation being taken out of the way, but the Holy Spirit will still be operating here because people will still get saved. All right. So I see there's quite a few questions here left. I'll, um, I'll take a look at those with the log later on and see if I can't use them for questions when we run out of them on our uh, Q and A's. All right. But stay close to Jesus. We'll have a service here in a couple of hours. Now this weekend, we're back in Luke 21. We're talking about the differences between when Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then flee to the wilderness. And when he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee to the wilderness. They are connected, but they are two different times. And we're going to talk about Jerusalem in the last days in our study. Um, here, at, well, our church service will be at six o'clock. I'll be teaching about 620 on these things. All right. So God bless you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, continue to pour yourself into his word. Learn it better. Most important, live it. Jesus said, more blessed than Mary, his mother who raised him, more blessed are you that obey, that listen and obey to the, or listen and do the word of God. That's pretty powerful. 
So let's do God's word. Let's keep it there. All right. God bless you guys. Uh, it's been a blast. We will see you later on.